Welcome to the future. You're listening to the Consensus Network. Consensus Network. Consensus Network. With Buck Joffrey. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Consensus Network. And today I'd like to start out to remind you that there are an abundance of resources for you at consensusnetwork.io. Uh, including some tutorials for those of you who are just going uh, down this blockchain cryptocurrency uh, distributed ledger rabbit hole. Uh, you'll get addicted quickly. This is a pretty uh, pretty fun place to be right now. Well, at least for me. I don't know. Maybe not for you. But it's, it is, it, I think it's exciting and it's interesting and it's a lot of fun. So um, go ahead and uh, go to consensusnetwork.io if you want to learn some of the basics and some of the tutorials there. Uh, in the meantime, let's talk about today's show. Today, um, we have a guy by the name of Tyler Jenks, who I'm going to, uh, who I did an interview with, and he's been around for a long, long time. Um, how long? Well, he uh, started trading the year my wife was born, and um, I'm not married to a teenager, <laughs> so uh, you know you don't see a lot of guys like Tyler, um, you know his age. Uh, in, in that generation in cryptocurrency. You don't see that really happen very often. And that's not necessarily a good thing because what that means is that we often lack some of the historical perspective uh, that uh, that accompanies a new asset class or you know markets that are starting to uh, develop and mature. Um, and so uh, Tyler, um, Tyler has ha- obviously has that experience in terms of how long he's been at it. Um, but he also has a different perspective, I think, from others who've, uh, who've been in the financial markets for the last several decades, which I also think, also think it makes it really unique. Um, you know, when Tyler looks at a particular uh, investment, whether that is gold or stock or Bitcoin, uh, he doesn't really care what it is that he's looking at. He doesn't really care about the fundamentals of that particular asset, what he's really known for as is a master of chart analysis. Now, what does that mean? It means that he studies patterns, really. That's really what he does. And it's patterns without re- regard to, you know, any asset fundamentals or news or anything else that we've certainly been talking about on this show. In other words, he isn't looking at investments the way most people do, most investors do. Certainly not me, because I am definitely not a trader. Um, For Tyler, though, uh, it has worked over the years, and he has made a lot of people a lot of money. So, um, you know, it's it's important to listen to people like him, because, again, uh, I think the the history, for me personally, in the last— uh, 10, 10 to 15 years, the real lessons have been to listen to people coming from all directions and to try to integrate all that information and make uh, the the right decisions for yourself based on that. And certainly, again, for Tyler, it's worked over the years. Um, and in saying that, I will tell you that what you're going to hear in this podcast might make you a little nervous right now. Um as I speak, I think Bitcoin is at around 6200 bucks. But remember, I always I always do these things about a week before uh, they release. So I don't know what it's at right now. But Tyler thinks uh, there's some, some things that are going to happen in the near future 
they're going to make this price come tumbling down. Uh, so if you're if you own Bitcoin, uh, then you are certainly not going to want to miss this episode and then the uh, commentary and questions and answers to follow. So when we come back, Tyler Jenks. Now, there isn't much more exciting than cryptocurrency, but there are old-fashioned ways of creating wealth outside of Wall Street that have been used by the wealthiest families in the world for generations. And that's what my other podcast is all about. It's called Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, if you've made a lot of money in crypto and don't know what to do next, this show might actually answer a lot of those questions, too. Again, it's Wealth Formula Podcast with me, Buck Joffrey. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Consensus Network is Tyler Jenks. Tyler is the president and CIO of Lucid Investment Strategy, Lucid Investment Strategies LLC, um, and developed the proprietary technical system of Hyperwave in 1979. So, after 40 years as an investment manager, he discovered over 300 examples of Hyperwaves, which we'll get into more within various asset classes such as stocks, bonds, commodities, indexes, and cryptocurrencies. And through careful study, he invented and developed the hyperwave theory, which is a technical tool to analyze the hyperwaves and determine price movement. Now, Tyler believes that hyperwaves occur when there's a momentous shift taking place in the uh, macroeconomic environment, um, such as the Great Depression, Bretton Woods, uh, the U.S. going off the gold standard in 1971 and when Japan rose to world economic prominence in the 70s and 80s. So those are just some example. Tyler, uh, thanks again for being on Consensus Network. Well, I'm glad to be here. This is a, a lot of fun for me, um, mainly because I kept Hyperwave under wraps for <laughs> uh, almost 40 years selfishly. I used it for my clients and in my business, but uh, then I got very interested in Bitcoin and all of a sudden uh, we thought this is the right time to start talking about it. So yeah, I mean, let's let's go with that. Let's talk a little bit about how, of course, you know, you've been a technical trader uh, since 1979, right? I mean, so most <laughs> most of the people involved in uh cryptocurrencies of any kind were probably not even born. So what, <laughs> that's right. So what got you interested in uh, in cryptocurrency in the first place? How did you learn about it? When did you get involved and why? Yeah, great, great question. Uh, I'm an old timer in crypto. I started mining Bitcoin back in 2012 and uh, I stumbled onto it mainly because of a series of books I read um, that had to do with this exponential growth in technology uh, ever since Moore at Intel and Moore's Law. Uh, I've followed it very, very closely. And um, then uh, someone by the name of Kurzweil started writing some books about it, starting with um, uh, a, a book called The Intelligent Machine. And then he followed that up by The Spiritual Machine. And then he followed that up with a fabulous book called The Singularity is Near. 
And in each of those sequential books, what he was doing is he was simply exploring what exponential growth means. And that rang true to me because what a hyperwave is exponential growth. And I had been working with that for 20 years before I started reading Kurzweil. So that's kind of a background, but the more important background is I started in the business of finance back in 1975 and was like everyone else. I started out as a broker and uh, fundamental analysis and studying stocks and economics. I have a master's degree in business uh, where I really was mainly interested in international trade and international economics. Um, and so I take a macro view of things. And one of the main things I'm very interested in is asset classes, the difference between the precious metals and um, um, the difference between currencies and different types of currencies and all types of securities, ETFs, mutual funds, individual stocks, closed end funds, all that sort of thing, and how each of them match up to various asset classes. So for the next 40 years, that's what I did is um, I got into managing money for very large institutions, big pension funds, and um, studying and uh, fell in love with um, technical analysis. I became a student of what the heck is this thing? By just looking at a chart, you draw conclusions about the future. And most of the people in the 70s and 80s and even the 90s, maybe even into the 2000s, thought it was voodoo. And uh, I was on Wall Street and was one of the few people that used it every day and uh, used it very effectively and couldn't understand the great reluctance of business schools and of Wall Street firms and analysts of using this simple tool. Um, but I pressed on, I designed a couple of systems myself, but more importantly, I learned all of the other technical systems. And I know that sounds like hyperbole, but I love to learn. So I went all the way back to the 1920s, the 30s and the 40s. That's when you had W.D. Gann and the Gann angles. And then you had Elliot, R.N. Elliot and Elliot waves. And uh, I read all of their works. I read all of their papers on and on and on. So I really got into it. A book came out in 1948 by two professors, two PhDs out in Southern California called um, The Technical Analysis of Stock Prices by Edwards and McGee. And that's the Bible on Wall Street for anyone that uh, wants to get into technical analysis. I read it, reread it, reread it, reread it, gave it away, uh, bought another one, gave it away, bought another one. Uh, all the way up to today, I still have it on my shelf. But that introduced me to the whole concept. So your so, question is, how, how did I get into crypto? Right. And the answer is simple. Um, I read a little bit about it. I read the white paper, which was written by Satoshi Nakamoto, either he, she, or them, and um, fell in love with the concept. Because what was clear to me was 
that the world needed Bitcoin. We had just come through 2006, <clears throat> 7, 8, and 9, one of the biggest downturns since the Great Depression. I was able to get all of my clients out of the stock market before it turned down using Hyperwave. And we can talk about that later. But, but what really struck me during those years, right up until the time Satoshi Nakamoto wrote his white paper, was there is something missing in the macroeconomic world financial system. And it doesn't seem to be getting better. It seems to be getting worse. And all of a sudden, I read this very short piece, and it all comes together. And I fall in love with the concept. So I study everything I can in uh, 2010, 11, 12, started mining Bitcoin, got caught in Mount Gox, which for those of your listeners <laughs> that don't know, that's the first big exchange, basically a Chinese exchange that uh, was the only place to buy and sell this stuff. And everybody did it. And it blew up as so many others have since then. And I got disgusted, not with Bitcoin, but with what was happening that early in the crypto ecosystem, meaning people taking advantage of what Bitcoin stood for to come up with new projects and new projects and uh, new ICOs and new alts. So I just, I turned my back on it and did so for three or four years until I got a phone call from my son who said, dad, I think you should take a look at Bitcoin again. I think it's in a hyperwave. I didn't even think of that. Uh, I was busy managing money and doing my, my own thing, but I said, yeah, I'll take a look at it. I spent about three weeks recreating all the pricing, going all the way back to the beginning on my, on my own instead of using various exchanges, uh, plotted it all, did the analysis, came to the conclusion, he's right. That was in April, just a year ago. So, so, so let's back up for just a second here. You for bet. people who are, so people uh, listening to this show, um, first of all, something very basic, and of course, I'm sure most people know, but just in case they don't, technical analysis, what we're talking about here is we, we don't, we're not looking at, you know, in terms of the, the, the equity markets, we're not looking at PE ratios. We're not looking at profits. We're looking at graphs, right? That's what we're doing. And so what you're doing, what that, that was what was sort of revolutionary or different about the way you were approaching things, um, you know, as opposed to the West of Wall Street, probably in part because it made them seem like you wouldn't need them anymore if all you had to do was look at graphs. Now, now, yeah, as part of that, you came up with this hyperwave system. Can you talk a little bit specifically about, you know, obviously in broad terms, because we, we're not a bunch of technical traders, but what exactly is the hyperwave theory? And if you could provide some historical examples of that, that would be great. Absolutely. Great question and great observations. Um, I am a fundamental analyst. Um, because behind every technical chart, there is uh, an infinite amount of fundamental data. And it's that infinite amount that gets debated all the time between various analysts, various uh, money managers, 
trying to find that information that is pertinent to the current day movement of price and using that fundamental information. You're right, uh, things like earnings and e even management and things like um, um, balance sheets and uh, profit uh, margins and all of the rest of it, everybody has access to that information. And therefore, nobody has access to the truth. Everybody thinks that the hundred pieces of fundamental information they have is equal to or superior to everybody else's. And that cannot be true and is not true. And that's why people that purely use fundamental analysis will do very well for a time, and then they won't do so well. Sure. And back and forth and back and forth. So what technical analysis is, is you look at what is the world, all the players in the world voting for. They're either buying or selling after they've gotten all the information that's out there fundamentally, and now they draw a conclusion. With that information, I'm going to buy GE, or I'm going to sell GE, or I'm going to hold GE. That shows up that day as the price variation of GE. But that's people all over the world. That's institutions. It's very smart people, very stupid people. It's very, very rich people and very, very poor people. Someone buying 10 shares and somebody buying 5 million shares. They all get a vote and that vote will move the price and at the end of the day, where the price is, is the collective consciousness of all players on all sides of the market. Well, that's what I want to know. I don't invest in P.E. ratios. I can't make any money buying a P.E. ratio. I can make a money or lose money by buying G.E. So it's a way of synthesizing enormous amounts of data into one data point. And then the next minute, there will be another, and the next hour, and day, and week, and month, and so on. And so if you plot all of that, what you are doing is you are getting the essence of what everyone believes to be true. And therefore, it's translated into price, and that gives you the only thing you need to know about investments. So now, please. No, no. So, so, and that, so where does the, so the hyperwave takes this information in a very specific way, right? It does. And, and tell us it, about that. It is a formation that takes place. Some people that have never looked into technical analysis hear it all the time on CNBC or Wall Street Journal or Barron's or IBD Investment Business Daily, um, where people say, oh, um, this market has gotten overheated because it's extended. And here's the historical examples. And then they'll say it is forming what's called a double top, which just means the price came up, couldn't get any higher, ran up to 100, then fell back to 80, ran back up to 100, fell back again. And back in 1948, Edwards and McGee, in that book I talked about, which was the first real book on 
technical analysis came to the statistical conclusion that if something forms a pattern like that, the probability is that it is not going to be able to go up above that level for a period of time, it's probably going to go down. And that statistic back then was about 70% of the time, which gave you a clue looking at all your fundamental stuff, but maybe this isn't the right time for me to be in this thing. Maybe I'll cut back. Okay, so that's a pattern. There are millions of patterns that have been identified by thousands of technical analysts and they have all kinds of crazy names, but all the things like RSI, which stands for Relative Strength Index, um, MACD, which uh, stands for moving average convergence divergence. Those are all plotted against price to draw conclusions about when something goes too far one way or too far the other way. Mm -hmm. And they all have statistical probabilities of being correct. Okay, I learned a system back in 1979 <clears throat> that was called this sequential trading system. Now, anybody that knows Tone Vase on YouTube or on Twitter knows that he uses that system. <clears throat> and you were joking before, but he jokes about the fact that I learned that system before he was born. <laughs> I cannot use it as well as he does. He is brilliant because what he did is he changed a couple of variables that someone else had uh, used on Bloomberg for 20 years and made it better. What Tone didn't realize is that the original guy that set it up had an 80% probability, which is the highest I've ever seen on a technical system of being correct when it gave a signal. And Tone uh, is able to do that over and over again. Nobody needs to believe me. Just go to YouTube and look up Tone Vase. Every day when he does his show, he will go to Bitcoin and show you his analysis of Bitcoin prices using that one system called a sequential trading system. All right, you ask me about Hyperwave. Hyperwave is the simplest of all technical systems and nobody knows it because nobody uses it. What it is, people know what a bubble is, but they can't define it. They simply know that in the past, things like tulip bulbs back 400 years ago went into a bubble in price and then it exploded and a lot of famous people around the world, mainly Europeans, lost a lot of money. Kings, princes, uh, the heads of uh, finance got caught up into this thing called the tulip bulb mania. That was a bubble that started very low, got bigger and bigger, pulled more and more people. Today we call it FOMO, fear of missing out, F-O-M-O. Sure. Fear of missing out is a psychological condition that investors get into where when they see something going up, like today marijuana stocks, and a friend tells them they should buy marijuana stocks because he just made 100% in the last six months, you feel guilty that you're not doing it, so you jump in, which is usually the time that you should be jumping out because that is a bubble and when that bubble bursts, it goes down five times faster than it went up. And most people lose all their money. Okay. I found that there's a subset of a thing called a bubble. And there's many, many bubbles we can all talk about, like the dot-com bubble of 1995 to the year 2000. Um, 
there's been bubbles in things like biotech stocks, bubbles in Japan, the Japanese stock market, bubbles back in the 1920s in the US stock market that led to the Great Depression. Now, in each of those cases, I just defined, there is a subset of a bubble that's called a hyperwave. And it moves in seven phases, not six or not eight, always seven. And once you know you're in it after phase two and you've moved into phase three, and I can explain very quickly sure. so people can picture it. I don't That'd even have great. to draw yeah. a chart. But when you move into phase three, you have an 85% probability that you're going to go all the way into phase four, five, six, and seven. Okay, what does that mean? It means no longer is a bubble unpredictable. These are bubbles that become completely predictable. What you have to do is find them, they're very rare, and you have to recognize them. And then most importantly, you've got to know what the heck to do about them. So that's what I've been doing for 40 years is finding them, using them, using them for clients, using them to help me get out of the dot-coms before they crash, get out of the stock market in 07, 08, 09 before it crashes, hopefully get out of the next bubble, which is already forming in credit and debt before it actually happens. But when I go back into history using this very simple technique, I have found 300 different examples that all follow the exact same form. Phase one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. Let me quickly explain what that means. And I'm going to use Bitcoin because some of your followers, maybe all of them, yep. um, know exactly what's happened in Bitcoin. But let me describe from a hyperwave point of view what happened. We went through almost nine years of the price not being able to get above a thousand in Bitcoin. That's the horizontal line at $1,000. That 1,000 is a very important number in all of finance. Why? Because back in 1965, the Dow Jones Industrial Average hit 1,000 for the first time in history. And it could not get above that for the next 17 years until 1982. Huh. From 1965 to 1982, it formed a phase one of a hyperwave in which the definition of phase one is all the price stays below that number. Same thing with Bitcoin from, from the early years of 19 excuse me, 2009, all the way until 2016, late 2016, early 2017, even though the price went up tremendously from 10 cents to $10, $100, $1,000, it then dropped back to 265. And then went from 265 back up to 1,000 and then dropped back all the way down into the low hundreds until it started to take off in a hyperwave. And the definition of the beginning of a hyperwave is when price that has been below a level horizontally for years and years breaks up through it. That's the end of phase one and the beginning of what's called phase two. And phase two is simply an angle of approximately 45% from the phase one line in which price 
never goes below that line. It always stays above it. It can get way above it, but then it'll come back down to it and go way above it and come back down to it, but it will never get below that angle. That's mm -hmm. the phase two of a hyperwave. It then moves up into what's called phase three, which is another angle, but steeper than the first one. Never less, always steeper. So instead of 45 degrees, it's going to go up at something on the order of 60 degrees. And it can do that for a year or two years or three years without the line ever being broken a single time. Because as soon as one of the up waves of a hyperwave breaks, the hyperwave is over. Then you go into the fourth and final up leg, which is almost vertical. And when that final line breaks, that's the end of the up part of a hyperwave. So presumably that would have been Bitcoin 20,000. That is Bitcoin 2017 on December right. the 19th. Right. December the 19th, we got up to 19,666 on Bitstamp. We got over 20,000 uh, on some of the foreign exchanges, but I use Bitstamp just because of the volume. Uh, so 19,666 on December the 19th was the day of the peak. And then the prices began to go down. And they went down far enough in the next week that they broke phase four of the hyperwave, the vertical move that took us from $3,000 to $20,000 in four months. That was phase four of the hyperwave. When that broke, I knew as soon as it broke where Bitcoin prices were going. All the way back down to phase one at $1,000. I said so at the time. I sold out of everything I had, which I had bought four months earlier, um, and of course made a huge profit. But I've been telling everybody since, don't buy this market. It's going lower, it's going lower, it's going lower. We're now stuck at 6,000 after dropping from 19. And I firmly believe, because of what Hyperwave tells me, that we're on our way down to 1,000. I'll, I'll give some other details about that later. We're just talking about the formation of a hyperwave. Now, what I just described, seven phases, does something funny in phase five, six, and seven. Phase five is a vertical drop down, usually even faster than phase four went up. That's the crash. That's what we saw in 1987 with the stock market crash that took it down 22% in one day the biggest drop in the history of the stock market, not on a dollar basis, but on a percentage basis. 22% of all the money was lost in a single day when phase four of the hyperwave of the Dow Jones Industrial Average broke back on, once again, the 19th of October this time, uh, 1987. A week before that, we had a break of the phase four line, and that's why I was able to get everybody completely out of it before that uh, Dow crashed. All right, if you look at the NASDAQ from 1995 to 2000, you'll find the exact same pattern. And you'll see that in March of 2000, seven months before the stock market turned down, the dot-coms that were all in the NASDAQ broke phase four of the hyperwave and began to crash. All right, so that's what a hyperwave is. 
one flat, that's phase one, three up waves, two, three, and four, a sharp five down, and then the real surprise, the one that blew my mind back in 1979. And then as I found more and more examples, found that every example of a hyperwave, that's 40% or 50% or 80% or 98%, 100% of all hyperwaves after the phase five crash goes the other way, starts going back up. In the case of Bitcoin, after going from 19,000 all the way down, it ran all the way back up to 17,500. And a lot of people, most people, still people today that are still holding Bitcoin because they didn't know about Hyperwave until we started doing our YouTube videos, believe that it was going to go back up and start a new move back up. Whereas if you know Hyperwave, you know it never happens. Not a single example where the phase six back up gets above the old high. And then it turns down into the long ugly, I call it maniacal phase seven, which is what we are in now in Bitcoin that goes on and on and on for months and months and sometimes years before it gets to where it's going. With Bitcoin, I don't think that's going to happen. I think a couple of other things will happen that will shorten that greatly, but I still think it'll be well into next year before we find our bottom. Okay. So that's it. That's the whole story. Yeah. No, I mean that uh, very fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating to me. I'm not a trader at all. Um, you know, I'm not a technical trader at all. And um, so, a couple things come to mind, uh, Tyler. When and, and I'm curious about the first is that you know why are we stalled at six thousand instead of um, one thousand? Or is there one more step of basically where you is that a slow decline down to a thousand that you they, that makes up that phase seven? Yeah, great, great question. Um, and, and the answer is that on the way down in a phase seven, after the phase six is over, which is the upswing, there are two possibilities of stopping the price to go all the way back to uh, phase one, in this case, 1000. The first case and the second case are both what I call funky hyperwaves. They occur about 20% of the time or one out of every five hyperwaves will stop at either their old phase three line. And now you, I hope everybody can picture this. You've got a phase one line that's going horizontal you start up into a phase two angle. If you extend that phase two angle to infinity, just keep it going off your graph paper. What will happen in a hyperwave is then you will accelerate away from that phase two, which is down here into the phase three. Now extend that line into infinity. Just keep it going mentally and on paper that you're not in them anymore because you're accelerating away from them. You've gone from a one to a two, then a two to a three. And then when three goes into a four, four you can't extend. It's going vertical and nothing goes vertical. Not a single stock, bond, commodity, currency, uh, price of um, art, nothing goes straight up. 
It can't. In the physical world, it can't do it. They all end, but they don't all end in a crash. They all end by an S-curve, which means you start out in a phase one, you begin to accelerate up, but then you flatten out at the top and keep going forever. That's what happens in technology very often. In technology, everybody knows that exponential growth, which is what more identified with um, the uh, uh, chips dropping in half in terms of price, speeding up by two times in terms of their speed and two times their memory was in an exponential growth that if you plot it keeps getting steeper and steeper. That's why we've got all the technology we've got today. Um, the same thing is true in the financial markets. The reason in the financial markets you can't go up forever is because the amount of money in the world is limited at X. X is a very big number. But the only way to get something to keep going up is that if everything else, all stocks, all bonds, all real estate, all art, all racehorses, all numismatic coins, all of it is liquidated to go into this thing that keeps going up infinitely high. Never is going to happen, not in the human world. Sure. So everything gets to a peak and then goes back down again. People get out of it and then things start over. Okay, with Hyperwave, your question is, why are we stuck at 6,000? Well, the reason is because those extended lines, phase two and phase three, are huge support for price when it comes back down to them. In the phase three line, I was hoping, and people that want to go back to our vlogs, we've got 110 of them now on YouTube under the name Hyperwave. You can find all the times we've talked about it with lots of examples, hundreds of hours of examples for anybody that wants to. But what you'll find is I started saying very early, I'm hoping that this is a funky Hyperwave, meaning that the phase three line will stop the price. It won't go down below it. And sure enough, if you look at a chart, you will see that when the first drop to 6,000 took place, it cut through the hyperwave phase three line, but by the end of the week, and everything I do in hyperwave is based on the weekly closes, which means in the stock market Friday at four o'clock, in the crypto market, it means at eight o'clock Eastern daylight time is when they switch over from the previous day to the new day, but it's a 24 hour chart. It never stops. So artificially crypto stops at eight o'clock Eastern daylight time. And then you start a new day or a new week or a new month. Okay. The way hyperwave works is all the price uh, the most important price is the closing price on either Friday for the stock market or at eight o'clock on Sunday night for the crypto market. What happened that week is we did break through the phase three line, but by Sunday's close at eight o'clock, it had come back over the line and shot up and kept on going all the way back to 12,000. Then it came back down a second time, right to the line phase three line. It held again, went up to 10,000, came back down to the line. Now that line is moving up and people don't need to know this number, but I'll tell you it's moving up at $80 a week. So if you go back, um, you mean the resistance line, 
that the uh, resistance line, yeah. which is the old phase three line, yeah. the one we're in now is the phase two line, will keep getting higher and higher, mm -hmm. which means the longer it takes for price to get through it, the higher the price is bouncing. Okay. But then after 11 tests of the phase three line, it broke. That means the phase three is no longer valid. And it means that hyperwave is now at least going to go down to phase two. When the phase three line broke, Bitcoin was below $4,000. It was at 30, excuse me, the phase two line was at $3,700. But it's been moving up at $80 a week. Right now it's sitting at 5,600. Okay, your question is why do we keep holding at 6,000? Well, we don't. We hold at 6,200, 5,900, yep. 6,100, yep. and the low is 5,785 and then back up over 6,000. It's actually a range between 5,800 and 6,200. That's the support and that support has held on five different occasions since it first came down the first time to the 6,000 level. So the answer is 6,000 is showing itself to be formidable support. In technical analysis, the strongest lines on a chart are resistance that are horizontal or support that is horizontal. And we don't need to get into that, but statistically it's very easy to prove. When you get something like this 6,000 area, there's two others. There's one at 10,100 and one at 11,100 that I've called in my blogs the valley of death because whenever we get up to that, it's huge overhead resistance. And even if we go from 6,000 back up to 10,000, which we have done, couldn't get over 10,000, fell all the way back to six. All right, that's kind of how all that stuff works. But what's happening now is the phase two line at 5,700 will be 5,780 next week. The week after, it'll be at 5,860. And now it's above the low point of where Bitcoin has gone earlier on at its low 5,780. So what's happening is we're squeezing price between the horizontal at 6,000 and my phase two line coming up. I believe that the phase two line will break. And I'm giving that only a 20% chance of holding because that's what happens in a funky hyperwave. We saw it with phase three. It tried 11 times to hold and then it broke and disappeared. Now we're testing the phase two line. So here is what I believe is about to happen to get us to a thousand. We took a detour along the 6,000 line but remember, a phase seven does not care about time. It will take its sweet time until everybody no longer believes we're going down. And then Fu Manchu pulls the ripcord or pulls the lever and the bottom drops out. Tone believes that's going to happen in the next week or two. I think he might be right for other technical reasons that have nothing to do with hyperwave. In any case, it is going to break. 6,000 is going to break to the downside. And then we've got three things that price has got to try to resist going through. First is my phase two line. It'll cut through that like butter because we're too close to 6,000 now.
But then we're going to go down to a line that Tone Bays um, has drawn long before we went up to 20,000. He said 49.75 was going to be a very important point if and when Bitcoin prices come down. And I believe we're very, within a short period of time, we're going to see that. Right below that is another line at 4,800. It's called a Fibonacci line. We don't need to get into that, but it's a 3,000. 2700 year old um, thing having to do with the what's called the golden mean in uh, in geometry um, that was then turned 600 years ago into this thing called Fibonacci by somebody whose name was not Fibonacci but he was an Italian mathematician that and those lines are used today in a lot of technical analysis. And there's a horizontal line at 4,800. Okay, I don't want to overwhelm everyone, but I just want people to understand that you have to marry together things like hyperwave with many other things to understand exactly what's going on so that you can explain them. I believe there's only a 20% chance that my phase two line will hold. I'm hoping that it does because I'm a believer that Bitcoin's going to 100,000, 250,000, 500,000, a million, five million before it's over, but not before we go back down to a thousand, wipe out most of the other alts, most of the other ICOs, most of the exchanges that are not structurally sound, leaving only Bitcoin. And at that point, I believe Bitcoin will start another hyperwave that will make the first three, there have been three of them in Bitcoin, the one we just had, the two mini ones back in 2014 and smaller one before that, they were, I don't consider them hyperwaves, but they look like it, smell like it, and they were just too short in terms of time. I believe there's a fourth one coming that will be enormous. So what we've been telling people is all the way from 20,000, get out, it's going much lower. Don't hold, don't hold on, because what will happen psychologically is you will get burnt out. Not only will you lose all of your gains, but you will see this thing continually eat away at what you thought was your wealth until there's almost nothing left, as opposed to let's give this thing a shot. Get out, get into cash. We, we get literally letters and emails every day from people that are thanking us because they listened back in February and March and April and May, still took big losses from the top, but have saved half their money since then. And if I'm right, if you get out now, you're gonna save 80% because we've still got another 80% to go from current levels, which means that if you are standing on the side in cash, you can put five times more money in right. when it finally gets to where it's going. So let me let me ask you this, because I, you know, again, this is totally fascinating to me, but I'm also looking at a lot of um, what might be characterized as, uh, well, unusual events that don't invo involve the charts that are happening in the, in the, um, you know, Bitcoin ecosystem right now. For example, right. if you look even just, you know, next month, you've got uh, Bakht, B-A-K-K-T. Yep. Um, you've got, uh, you've got, uh, you know, different custodianships too. Now you've got you know, Fidelity's involved. You've got 
all of these major Wall Street um, uh, firms, and it and it and it looks like this marriage or this bridge is being created that this infrastructure for institutional money uh, to finally get on board and have a custodian, maybe not institutional so much as you know maybe larger hedge funds and and um, family offices ex- and all that. Now, when I look at what you're saying in in perspective of what's going on at uh, with ins- with big money, it, it seems it, it's hard for me to reconcile that. How can how can, can can you give me your perspective on that? Absolutely, and that is the essential question about all technical analysis, and that is doesn't news items or new facts or um, events of some type or huge amounts of money becoming interested in something, isn't that all you need to know? And the answer is no, never. It will always show up in price. It's not theoretical. All the things you just mentioned, um, let's take two quick examples. The best example of all is Japan. Japan uh, went from less than $1,000 on the Nikkei, which is the Japanese stock market, all the way up to 38,000, 1,000 to 38,000. People didn't realize that was in uh, a hyperwave. I did, and I said right after December of 1989 that uh, the fourth phase of a hyperwave is broken, and now we are going to see the Japanese stock market fall all the way back to 6,000, from 38,000. Now, the reason I'm using this as an example, because it did. It took it 20 years to get there, but it kept going down and down and down, recession, 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 try to come in, the Bank of Japan tried to come in, institutions, doesn't matter. It kept going all the way back down before it finally found its bottom. But think about what were the fundamentals for the 20 years that took it from 1,000 to 38,000. My answer to that, it was manipulated by not only a government, but by all the major corporations in Japan. What people don't remember, particularly ones that aren't my age, that Japan was quickly overtaking the United States as the single most important financial market in the world not because of their stock market, because of their banks. In 1989, the 10 largest banks in the world were all Japanese. In 1989, the real estate in Tokyo was worth three and a half times the total value of all corporations in the United States. The real estate in Tokyo. What caused that tremendous surge, manipulation and money under government and corporate um, behavior that supported each other? The government would step in and prop up stock prices. Corporations would get together and buy each other's stock so it couldn't go down. All of those things are like what you are now describing for Bitcoin. Well, there's this big player and that big player, and look what's happening with Lightning, and what, look what's happening with 
uh, banks uh, working together with Tether. Ooh, no, I guess they're not working together with Tether. Every one of them are unwinding. They say they're going to do it. Uh, for example, Goldman Sachs. Yeah, we're going to get into it. We're going to build this big trading center. So, uh, no, we're not going to. So the only thing that matters is what's price telling you? Has price done anything since Fidelity made their announcement? No. Has price done anything since all of these exchanges around the world have been set up? No. Or banks, or it's got to be translated into price. So you start with price, and unless price begins moving up, those fundamentals are not affecting Bitcoin. Theoretically, they are. We think they should. Intuitively, we think they must, but that unless people say, it's going to, and therefore I'm putting my money into it, the price won't move. So that's my explanation. I agree completely with you. And that's why at the right time, under the right circumstances, Bitcoin is going to do what I'm suggesting it's going to do. But right now what's happening is Bitcoin is being uh, pirated by every new ICO and token that comes in. That is not new money. That's money coming from Bitcoin. That's coming out of the development of the Bitcoin chain, building inferior things that one by one disappear. And now governments are going to make sure they disappear. And that's why we've gone from 2200 down to 1600 in the last 60 days. Not because that government put them out of business, but the SEC and others are saying, unless you register with us, and act like a registered, regulated security and do all the things that everybody else has to do, we're going to come and get you. And they are saying, meaning the tokens, the ICOs, the developers, the promoters, the lawyers, the CPAs that are putting these things together, they're saying thanks, but no thanks, and they're closing down. I believe that there won't be more than 10 or 15 altcoins and ICOs left when Bitcoin finally gets to the bottom. And now it's got a clear runway. And now everybody understands it is not a security. It cannot be regulated as opposed to every, it is decentralized. No other one is decentralized. They say, oh, we're more decentralized. Nonsense, we could do a whole show on that. Only Bitcoin, only the original construction allows for it to be totally anonymous and yes, it's got problems. It's got problems in scaling and speed and size. And more importantly, it's got a lot of problems if you try to trade them on an exchange. You and I don't have a problem with it. If I want to send you Bitcoin, you want to send it back to me, it's done like that. We've got clients that try to go through the banks. We've got clients all over the world now. And uh, they try to send us a bank wire to pay for a fee or something. And it takes a day, three days, five days, a week doesn't go through, all kinds of problems. And so they say, oh, what the heck, I'm just gonna send you Bitcoin, and three minutes later, we've got it. Nobody knows they sent it, nobody knows we received it. We, of course, are going to tell all of the authorities here how much we've got and all of that sort of stuff. But what I'm saying is that cannot happen with anything else. No matter how deeply you look into it and how much money is spent in the promotion of it, and throwing the parties and the conferences and all of that, they are all inferior. Does that make me a Bitcoin maximalist? No, it does not, uh, because I disagree with a lot of what Bitcoin maximalists believe in 
it, to me, it's not a divine right. It's I'm looking as carefully as I can at what the evidence is showing. And that's the conclusion I've come to. So, um, so what, so how do you see this all playing out by the end of this year? Because again, um, you know, you have these theoretical openings of these exchanges, et cetera, but then do you see them, you know, the first one's really probably balked. That one opens up what in, in, in next month. Yeah. And then, and then do you see this crash down to a thousand, uh, or even 3,500 in phase two? Do you see all that potentially happening before, uh, before that or? No, no, no. I think yeah. all the, all these projects, uh, as long as they're regulated, as long as the SEC says, yeah, you've got our blessing, as long as they do the things like all the others, the New York Stock Exchange and the ICE and Commodity Exchanges and the CBOE, is if everybody is following the rules, they will be allowed to come. That doesn't mean they will be used. Mean, they but I'm, used. I'm specifically talking about Bitcoin in this case. Is yeah. whether whether you see this one thousand or you know thirty five hundred or one thousand drop, um, I'm I'm trying to get a sense from your graphs if you're seeing that happen within weeks months, um, you know. I'm in, seeing in the, I'm seeing us breaking down and testing the phase two line, um, maybe repeatedly before the end of this year. And possibly as soon as next week or the week after that. Um, but I do believe it will hold the phase two line the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, which means I think we can drop down as low as about 4,400 from 6,000, go through those th three lines that I talked about, and still in that week, I have huge amounts of money pour in and make it run back up, back over to 6,000. Right. I think that's what we're going to see. That's what the probability says. But that doesn't get us out of the woods because that's only the first test of that line. And I think that will all occur before the end of the year and possibly much sooner than that. Then, uh, now remember, no ETFs have been approved. And people keep hoping, oh, good, the SEC is finally going to approve this ETF. Uh, and then they don't. And I don't believe they will until next spring. And next spring is kind of when their final shot is of getting an ETF through. If anybody does it, it'll probably be uh, Gemini, the Bingo Bosses. I right. think that'll go through. I think Van Eck has the Van possibility Eck. and yeah. probability of getting one through. Now, just to be fair to everybody, I have never bought a Bitcoin in my life. I said that I uh, bought a bunch of, I bought a bunch of Bitcoin, but I did it through a security. I did not do it on any exchange. I did not actually buy Bitcoin. I bought GBTC, which is the Bitcoin Investment Trust that has been around for four years, approved by the Securities and Exchange Commission. It is not an ETF, but it's like it. It's what's called an ETP, through which grayscale is a or something like that. Right? Product, so, yeah. right? Um, but and it is very difficult to use. If I didn't have the experience I did, I would not tell someone to jump into it because it acts like what is called a closed end fund. It can trade above or below the intrinsic value of the amount of Bitcoins they've got. The average over the last four years is 40%. It trades at a 40% premium to the Bitcoin prices, 
of all the Bitcoins owned by the trust. So if the trust owns a billion dollars, the GBTC will be trading 40% more than the value of that divided by the number of right, shares right. on average, on average. But it has gone up to 125% and it's gone as low as negative. And I graphed all of that. I understand all of that. I love buying GBTC whenever the premium drops below 10 because mm -hmm. then even if Bitcoin doesn't move, GBTC has the potential of going back to its average premium of 40. And I've made 30% right. simply because of the knowledge of how that works. That's tricky stuff. I'm not suggesting it. All I am suggesting is when I got burnt by Mount Gox, when I saw what was happening in the ecosystem that looked like progress because of growth, because of the growth of the total capitalization of all cryptos, including Bitcoin, which went from 99.9% all the way down to 34% of the capitalization because all the other cryptos stole from Bitcoin. They had people sell their Bitcoin to buy these new projects because everybody believed they had more potential and they did have more potential on a percentage basis. They made more. Why? Because they're tiny and huge amounts of money flowed into them. And so what you did is you got bubbles, right. millions of bubbles. Right. Okay. So uh, that's my answer in terms of the timing of what I see. It does not matter what is approved, what is not approved. If Fidelity comes in, Fidelity has been mining Bitcoins corporately for four years. They've been on this wagon. They understand it. They've got $7 trillion in assets. It's the biggest privately held corporation in the world. I love Fidelity. All of my accounts, most of my accounts are at Fidelity and have been for 40 years, including a billion dollars at Fidelity um, with my big institutional clients. They're brilliant at what they do. I'm glad they're here. When Bitcoin finishes what it needs to do, and gets going again, it will be Fidelity and Gemini and Goldman Sachs and big banks buying into it. And believe me, none of them are going to with all this nonsense that's going in in the crypto system. Yeah. So let, let's talk about that real quick, because one yeah, of the please. things that when you um, when you're talking about some of these breaks that could potentially happen right now, do, do you see, uh, and we'll probably need to give a little background on this, but what's happening with Tether, yeah. um, do you see some of that potentially uh, resulting in the, um, uh, being the cause of the instability that ultimately brings this um, Absolutely, but it might not be. Mm -hmm. Because other than Tether, I could name a hundred things that are causing instability throughout the ecosystem. But Tether is the biggest. The biggest meaning because they had a great, brilliant idea. It was needed by Bitcoin and by later other cryptos in order to have confidence that you could get into Bitcoin, out of Bitcoin, into dollars, back into Bitcoin easily, simply, but it was, it's built, unfortunately, on sand, not on rock, 
because of its lack of transparency. So Tether was, of course, a it's a what they call a stable coin and a, a coin that's supposed to be pegged to the U.S. dollar. Right. And, and fiat. And um, right. and um, do you want to explain real quick uh, what what has happened in the last week with that? Uh, that yeah, that's be, be glad to. And it's not only in the last week. This happens every once in a while with Tether, which is I compare what Tether is attempting to do and not just Tether, but a number of these these uh, new stable dollar coins. And some of them, I think, will replace Tether if Tether falls apart. And that's good because they are regulated. Um, they've said, okay, we will do this. We will do audits every month. We'll make those public. We'll do this. We'll do that. That tether is never done. But what happens is, uh, again, unless you're as old as I am, most people won't remember that um, a thing called money market funds that today has trillions of dollars in it. And there are hundreds and hundreds of money market funds at every brokerage firm, at every bank, you can go and put your money in a money market fund and it's at $1. So if you buy, put in a thousand bucks, you got a thousand of these things in the money market fund. And it's been around for 40 years. And it saved, no, it accelerated the growth of the financial industry in this country. It was a brilliant stroke of genius. But the man that invented it, he had the first one. His name was Dent. He had the first one, and then three others came along, then 20 others, then 50 others, then 100 others, then 1,000 of them. And they were everywhere, and trillions of dollars moved into them. And it meant that when you were in the stock market and wanted to get out, you didn't have to take your money out and go put it in a bank somewhere. You simply did it within your brokerage account, from stocks into money market funds, from money market funds into bonds, into commodities, back into money market funds. That's what Tether is all about. Tether is saying, we want the transportation, the ability for um, people to be able to move in and out very easily. Great, great concept. But then they said that they would have annual audits and they've never had an audit right up through today. And when people have pressed them on it, they've backed off. They got a law firm to come in and say, um, okay, we've looked at, um, the amount of money in the bank that's supposedly behind these tethers, which is a lot of money in the billions. Um, and it's there in the bank as of this day. And it was their own law firm that they had hired that made that comment. They didn't say that that's the way it was a week before, a month before, a year before, or the day after or the week after. And it's easy for financial companies to play games if you don't have regulators looking over your shoulder. Okay, there's a thing called breaking the buck. It started with money market funds, and it started in the middle of the crash between 2007 and 2009, in which the NASDAQ fell 80%, the S&P fell 50%, the Dow Jones fell 37%. We went into the deepest recession since the Depression, and during that period of time, that original money market fund broke the buck. It fell from a dollar to 97 cents, back to 99 cents, and back to a dollar. But the, go back and look at the headlines, and that was one of the biggest events of the entire four-year downturn, is that one event where one money market fund out of a 1,000 broke the buck for a, two days. And it scared the rest of the market, and for the next year, the market really plunged, real estate plunged, 
bond prices uh, plunged. But a part of that, the spark of that was a money market fund breaking the buck. Okay, what happened two days ago with Tether, it should be a dollar every day, every single day, never varying, is it first of all dropped to 97 cents, then 95 cents, then 85 cents in a matter of about an hour and a half. And then you got the short squeeze in Bitcoin prices where they ran from 6,100 to 6,800 in a little over an hour and a half. So it's all money uh, coming from Tether. People freaked out about that. And they just- And they bought Bitcoin. Right, right. They believed for a minute or an hour or a very short period of time that it was safer to be in Bitcoin, which has just dropped 70% from top to bottom in six months, seven months. <clears throat> That's safer than this thing called Tether. Yep. And so you get out of Tether and you buy Bitcoin. You can't buy Monero. You can't buy Cardano. You can't buy Litecoin. You've got to buy Bitcoin. It's Bitcoin, Tether, Tether, Bitcoin. Now you can take the Bitcoin and move it away and do something else with it. And therefore you had altcoins and you had ICO coins spiking for a short period of time along with Bitcoin prices. And some of them spike percentage-wise more for the reasons I've already given. They go down more when Bitcoin goes down. They go up more when Bitcoin goes up, but they're dependent on Bitcoin. None of them move independently. Whatever Bitcoin does, they will all do. They'll do it more on the upside and more on the downside. Okay, so what does all that mean? Well, all of a sudden we're back at uh, 94, 95 and a half percent, 95 and a half cents on Tether. So it's recovered from 85 cents back up to just a four and a half percent discount. But stable funds have got to be stable. Right. If they are not stable, there is something wrong in the construction. Yeah. And curiously, now, there was the uh, the Gemini uh, stable coin that is actually backed by the FDIC Yes. Actually went over a dollar. I think they were up to a dollar three. A dollar three, yeah. which means it is not a stable coin. <laughs> right. There, uh, People are saying, oh, wow, I'm in this thing and it's going up. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not what you want. Right. There is something wrong. So, but not nearly as wrong as Tether because it's right. regulated. Uh, they're going to do audits. But the mechanisms are very difficult in the financial markets in terms of moving money from banks, from credit into other places, back out. Uh, there's limits that uh, financial institutions put on other financial institutions. And we can know what those limits are with Gemini and some of these other stable, we can't with Tether. Now people, when you don't know, you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And that's not the time to be putting hard-earned dollars into something, hoping. And that's where Tether is. What are the, So the implications of this ultimately are just part of a larger instability in the ecosystem. There's people out there, myself included, who feel like, you know, okay, I bought Bitcoin at a pretty... You know, let's, let's, relatively speaking, a reasonable cost. Maybe bought around 55 hundred six thousand yeah. dollars and they're thinking well gosh if i'm listening to tyler right now 
I'd be crazy to hold on to this stuff. But then they're also thinking, but what if Tyler's wrong and this thing takes off without me? And all of a sudden we've got, you know, Fidelity and we've got, you know, Ameritrade and we've got all these this money piling in and we're wrong. So there's a potential uh, opportunity cost right there by, by selling. So if you're, if, is your uh, uh, advice at this point that you are sure enough to say sell 100% of what you got because this ain't going up from here. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I'm that, that certain, but nothing is certain in finance. No right. technical analysis is a hundred percent ever. I've been using numbers like 80%, 85% in rare cases like the sequential trading system most of them are a little bit better than 50-50. You can make a lot of money with a technical indicator that is uh, a flip of a coin. And that's called money management. What it means is be humble enough to know what the limits of the thing is that you use it in. And now use that to your advantage. Let's say it's a 50-50 system and many or most are right around that area. That's like going to Vegas. The difference is that you can control your losses if what your indicator is saying turns out to be wrong. You can let your gains ride if it turns out to be right. So if you've got what's called a stop loss or a limit order below your price, 10%, that's the most you're going to lose on the trade. So you lose 10% flip of a coin, you make 20% because you don't stop your gains as long as they keep going or 30% or 40%. That's a different subject. That's managing money. It's not any one decision. I will guarantee you, I've got another system that's called Consensio that is a timing system that as soon as that sh shorter term system tells me that we are not breaking down, not because of fidelity, not because of Gemini, not because of ETFs, not because of banks, but because the price begins to move opposite what I believe it should be doing, that shows up in price. And long before we've lost opportunity, we will be in Bitcoin on the long side. I estimate that to be 8,500. I'll start buying for other technical reasons that have nothing to do with hyperwave. And what it will mean to me is the phase two line has held at that $5,785 level when price got down there, close enough for government work. I don't think that's what's going to happen. But I'm saying that if price starts moving up, my clients are going to be in uh, for the ride up long, long before we get back to 10000 11000 12000 but we're not going to go all in. I never go all in. We'll do incremental steps. We'll buy 25% of X. If X for you is $5,000 and X for another client is $5 million, we'll do 25% of X on a close on a weekly basis above $8,500. Why? Because that will be the first time we have got a high above a high ever since the peak. Another Another discussion. So paradoxically, we're talking about waiting until Bitcoin is actually higher than it is right now before you'd buy. So, Absolutely. Yeah. You always buy into strength. You never buy into weakness. Ever. Mm -hmm. Ever.
ever. And the reason is mathematical. You have got a million dollars in the stock market. You get a 50% move in the stock market, either up or down. It sounds equal. Either you lose 50% or you make 50%. It is not equal. It is two and a half times more dangerous that you get to 50% to the downside. Why? You started with a million dollars and you lost half. That means you've got $500,000. What percentage will you need to make to get your money back? Yeah, you got to double it. Mm -hmm. You have to double it. Let's take the other side. You got a million dollars, you make 50%. You now have a million five. How much do you need to lose to get back to zero? Right. Even right. 33%. Mm -hmm. If you lose a third, you're back to where you started. You have to double your loss a hundred percent to get it back. You never ever buy weakness. There is, these are not equal things, risk and opportunity. Losing money and losing opportunity are not the same thing. Sure. You've only got X amount of dollars. You've got to steward that money. If we're at Somebody bought in at 5,500 bucks, so they got a $500 profit. Take it. Take it at 6,000 bucks. If I'm right, and we go to 1,000, you can buy six times the amount that you had. Right. If I'm wrong, and you buy at 8,500, start buying at 8,500, you're paying $2,500 more and you aren't doing it to make 25 or lose 25, you're looking for the move up to 100,000. Don't tell me that that two and a half percent is going to be meaningful to you when it runs to 100,000. Wait until the price is telling you it's ready to go. Not because of external news or external factors, the price. The only thing your money is designated in is price. It's not PE. It's not who else is in it, who's talking like Novogratz, that the bottom is in at 6,000. It's going to be 40,000 by the end of the year. No, it's not. It won't get over 10,000. That's a very smart man, a brilliant investor who has made a lot of money making the right calls. Don't listen to anybody making the right calls. Understand what's being said and ask the question, why do you think it's going to 40,000 and the bottom is in? Make him explain it to you. I'm yeah. explaining to everybody why I believe it's going down. Now, you don't have to accept that. But if you go and listen to the vlogs, I think the more you look at it and look at maybe 100 examples that I show uh, of exactly the same thing, you're going to put yourself in a position where you'll say, okay, this has been right every single time. Every one of these examples did the same thing. Maybe this time is not going to happen. And now you've got a better idea of what the probability of the upside and the downside is. And that's where you make your decision. Right. So tell me, uh, for our listeners here, tell us where, well, first tell us about your your firm. Is it a consulting firm? Is it a, uh, uh, you know, how, how can people potentially yeah. get involved with Thank that? Thank you very much. Thank you very much for asking. I wish I had an answer. It's constantly, <laughs> constantly changing. Um, basically, um, I set up a firm in Boston back in 1985. I set up a, uh, a firm back in Southern California in 1975. 
And uh, the one in Boston did one thing. It was a research firm that studied mutual funds. And I ran that for six years. That was before Morningstar did all of their analysis. And I came up with a way of timing and knowing which is the right mutual fund to buy, not because of what they did in the past, but looking ahead. What does the next month, year, two years, five years mean for this mutual fund? And we published all that data in Kiplinger Report, in Barron's, in Business Week. U.S. News and World Report ran my reports every quarter for 12 years. Uh, every time you saw a U.S. News and World Report with the cover about mutual funds, that was all the work that we did. From that, someone in New York saw my work and they managed money for big institutions, mainly big unions and big pension funds in New York City. Everything from all the firefighters to all the bus drivers to um, all the iron workers, um, communication workers of America, AFL-CIO, on and on and on and on. Uh, American Cancer Society, Make-A-Wish Foundation. And I used all these techniques to manage that money. So I moved my family down in 1991. We joined that firm. It was a privately held firm. And for 10 years, I was, first of all, senior portfolio manager. Then what I was called chief investment officer. I made all the decisions for what we did for our clients. Then along comes a bank. A bank buys us in 1998. We're no longer a private company. We're part of a huge bank, 15th largest in the United States, traded on the New York Stock Exchange, 10,000 employees, 300 offices, and my little group of 18 people managing money. No one in the bank knows about money management, but we sat in a corner and we did our thing. 10 years later, Capital One, the credit card company, bought the bank. Now we're part of this gigantic behemoth, and I took my company private again 10 years ago, and it was called Lucid Investment Strategies. Still is called Lucid Investment Strategies. I still manage money, but now not for big institutions, only for friends, family, and a group of clients that have been with me for 20 years. Uh, when I talk to my clients, we don't talk about their accounts. We talk about vacations and family and fun stuff because they get all the reports. They know exactly what I've been doing. They've seen me do it for a long period of time. Now, all of a sudden, I get this call from my son saying, April of last year, Dad, take a look at this. I think it's in a hyperwave. I get all excited. And I join up with Leah Wald, who is, she works with Tone and Jimmy mm -hmm. Song and Giacomo on the morning briefs. She works with me on anything we do on our blog. She's always there, mainly because I can't use computers at all. <laughs> uh, I'm amazed my, my microphone's still working without her here to help me. And she knows social media. She came to me after um, I made these trades in GBTC, told everybody to get out. She said, uh, the people in this crypto ecosystem need to hear something other than talk about crypto. They need to know money management, investment, when to buy, when to sell, what a trend is, why you always get out when a trend turns down. You never hold in a downtrend for all the mathematical reasons I've just given you. And she said, and I said, there's no way, you know, I can barely turn my computer on. She said, don't worry about that. Get in front of the computer. I'll do all this stuff on YouTube, on Zoom, on Twitter. You just talk, tell people what they you think they need to hear about not only Bitcoin and crypto, but other things, uh, retirement accounts and the stock market. I've got everybody in the stock market 
They've been in for 10 years. They're still in. We're going much higher in the stock market. We don't need to talk about that now, but that's where Bitcoin money and crypto money should be. It should have been there ever since December. If it was, you would have had much better opportunities and basically no losses instead of losing 75% of your money. So it's when and where. My theme is don't tell me what to buy. Tell me when to buy it. I don't care what the name of the investment is. People in the crypto space say, oh, Bitcoin's different. It's completely different. It won't act like an, it acts precisely the way every asset class has acted for the last 2,000 years and will continue to. That's why these systems I'm saying work on Bitcoin. And very few people in the crypto saw it coming. Even the people that were using other forms of analysis, technical analysis, uh, Elliott wave analysis, all kinds of other stuff. It's a very difficult thing to do and you've got to be expert. You can't have learned it by listening to a couple of blogs. You've got to think about it. You've got to get into it. So the, what we've done now is all of a sudden, a lot of people begin asking us if we would manage their money. And my answer is no, we won't. And then uh, they get upset, but then we got more and more of them. And we said, okay, we're going to come up with a program called consulting. And we've set up a consulting service that we're about to close down because it's filled up. And I only got so many hours in the day to talk with people and we're getting eight or 10 a day, an hour along, which means I'm not doing what I should be doing in terms of studying markets. So we're putting a cap on that in the next month or so and we'll close that down, but everybody that's in it will stay in it. Now what we're starting to do is we're starting to give webinars where we charge money. We haven't charged anything for the last eight months. We've done hundreds and hundreds of hours trying to teach people, uh, not what I believe, but teach people about what they need to know to make correct decisions. But, um, through this webinar, instead of talking one-on-one -on -one to a consulting client that takes a lot of time, we thought we could talk to 20 or 30 or 40 people at a time. So we did our first one last Friday. We charged $150. It was a three-hour uh, webinar with an hour additional, four hours altogether of questions and answers at the end of it, teaching another system, not Hyperwave, but another system, the one I talked about, it's called Consensio that you can look up also on the YouTube uh, Hyperwave channel. Um, it is, can be used everywhere. I'm using the stock market. I used it to get people out of gold and silver earlier this year. Uh, I used it to help get out of Bitcoin at the right time on these short upturn moves up to 10,000, up to 8,500, up to 7,500. Uh, so I teach it in this webinar. And instead of getting 20 or 30 people, we got 150. And um, we Zoom only allowed us 100 people. So two days before, we went back to Zoom and paid them a lot more money. And they let us expand it to 500 people. And so 50 people jumped in in the last couple of days. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to keep vlogging for free our 30 minutes to two hours on specific subjects, always going back to Bitcoin at the end. At the end of each vlog, we will analyze Bitcoin that day for what we see. Very short term, five minute charts, 30 minute charts, all the way up to monthly charts. 
revisit all of the technical systems because I use about uh, 40 different technical systems. The ones we're talking about today are just ones that I myself have come up with. And um, at the end of those logs, so anybody for free can listen. If you think you're hearing some things that might be interesting to you, go to our Hyperwave channel. If uh, you'd like to listen to our Twitter channel, uh, Lee and I both have one. We both have a couple 12,000 followers on it. We just started both of them earlier this year. We've got now about 9,000 on YouTube and we started that at the same time. So there's been a response that we find gratifying in that the things we are saying, not that we're always right or wrong, we're not trying to call. We're giving no advice about buy this or sell this. We're telling you what my systems are telling me about various things and you can take it or leave it. And if you want to take it, great. And uh, then we'll be doing the webinars. I'm hoping that as I get to know the consulting clients and they get to know me other than they've heard some vlogs and on one or two occasions, I've seen their face on Google Hangout. But a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, if they've developed a trust in me and I've developed a trust in them in terms of how they're going to react to the marketplace without going crazy. This marketplace is all about going from fear to greed and from greed back to fear. And we can't help it. That's what we do. That's what humans do. And until you learn that that's what's happening to you as you get excited or you get fearful, you start making a lot of mistakes. If you do what we try to teach, you're able to alleviate that so you can do it on your own. You don't need people like me because you'll learn how to do it. So that that's our story. Well, this has been a whirlwind of uh, information here, uh, but uh, but I I really do appreciate it. I think it's been uh, been fantastic, and and especially again as a non technical guy, I learned an awful lot. So, so uh, Tyler, uh, thanks so much for being a Consensus Network today. It's really my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. We'll be right back. Want to buy Bitcoin with your IRA? Don't waste your time on expensive IRA custodians. A strategy called a QRP is as easy as writing a check. Find out how. Text 44222 and type QRP book. That's one word. And get a free book that explains everything. Again, that's 44222 QRP book. One word. It's the easiest way to make Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies part of your retirement. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, this is Buck Joffrey again with Consensus Network. And um, so uh, hopefully you enjoyed that interview. And I'm, I'm curious what's on your mind. And if you would like to let me know, go to consensusnetwork.io, write some comments or questions or a voicemail or email me at info at consensusnetwork.io. So, you know, Tyler here, he thinks that uh, Bitcoin is going to crash here, right? He gave it, I think, about an 80% chance of of having a significant dip. And then after that, though, he's bullish. He thinks that it's going to, you know, make a run up to 100,000, maybe 500,000 after that. So when you hear something like that, the question is, what do you do with it? You know, what do you do with that kind of advice? Because honestly, when I listen to the guy, I'm like, gosh, maybe I ought to, maybe I ought to sell my position here, you know? I mean, I, I'm averaged in at about 6200 bucks sitting in cold storage, not planning on doing anything with it, right? 
here's the thing. What I will tell you is, uh, again, I said this at the beginning, but I'm I'm a good investor. I've got a pretty good track record of that. But I am a lousy, terrible trader. I can't time anything out, right? I'm uh, I'm looking at the macro picture. I'm looking at what I think is going to happen based on the larger picture. I'm not a guy who's really good with charts, and um, you know, so you may you may want to listen to Tyler. You may say, hey, maybe I'll sell this and just, you know, wait for Tyler's argument about, you know, catching it as it goes back up at 8,500, even if you're selling at 6,000 and he's wrong, is not a bad one, right? It's, it's, it's not a bad one. But what I feel like is that for me, it's just a lot of unnecessary movement because the truth of the matter is that, you know, even if it drops to 2,000, <clears> I'll probably just buy more. Well, I certainly would buy more and try to volume average myself down. And for me, the idea of selling and, you know, with all this general bullish optimism that I have about this market right now, it doesn't feel good. So anyway, that's certainly not investment advice. It's just the way I'm going to play this thing out. Uh, and that said, if, you know, by the time this plays, Bitcoin's down at 3,000, then, then, uh, then they, you know, exactly what I did, which is pretty much nothing. That said, uh, let's go to this week's question and answer section. Uh, just a couple of questions, uh, this week as a reminder, you can submit these questions again by going to consensusnetwork.io, leave a voicemail preferably, but no one seems to want to do that. Um, you can you can write your question there, or you can go to, you can simply email me at info at consensusnetwork.io. And uh, so let's start. The first question is from Vlad. Uh, question is: You've been talking about stable coins, and it seems like there is a new one every day. What's the point? What do you think? Uh, well, I think it's a very good question. Um, so what Vlad is talking about, uh, we've mentioned on the news uh, a couple of times. We had. A few weeks ago, Gemini, with the Winklevoss twins, right from Facebook lore, um, they have this this um, they have this thing called Gemini, which is a trading platform, and they're sort of cutting edge, I would say. I think those guys are doing a lot of good, and they they uh, offered up a a Gemini dollar, basically, that has a couple of unique qualities. One is that it is FDIC insured. It's basically real money, right? It's a real dollar. And um, and so that is really good. The other thing was uh, that they actually showed that, the, that they actually got their digital assets secured and insured in general, which was great. And then Coinbase came in like a week later and announced that they were going to have their own uh, uh, stablecoin as well. And again, just as a reminder, stablecoin is basically a coin that is pegged to the U.S. dollar one-to-one. -one. Uh, we had Tether, who was doing that before. Tether obviously seemed a little shady. Uh, we talked a little bit about that before, how they were avoiding any sort of audits. And it looks like Tether is basically kind of phasing itself out. Hopefully people don't get hurt by that before it's done. But for the most part, it doesn't seem to be doing much. So the question is, <clears throat> what's the point and what do you think? Let me tell you what the arguments are here. Uh, the arguments are that stable coins are are useful because they let people stay within cryptocurrency without going in and out of uh, of uh, fiat. 
currency. So in other words, you can just trade from there to go to another you know, U.S. dollar token. You don't have to go to fiat and exchange. And it's not a bad um, argument. There's certainly you know, plenty of... Um, there's plenty of exchanges out there that don't have fiat exchanges. So if you want something on there and you want to get some dollars on there, you can move some tokens over, et cetera. Um, the challenge is, though, that I will tell you is that uh, I don't know how that's all going to play out, like how you're going to be able to get yourself reimbursed in fiat if you should should choose to do so. For example, um, in order to get in and out of that token, that Gemini token, you have to have a Gemini account. And a Gemini account will allow you to convert that um, that Gemini dollar back into an American dollar and then you know wire it to your bank. The problem is it's not that easy to get some of these uh, some of these accounts. I mean, a Gemini account is actually kind of a pain to get. Um, I was trying to get an account as a business account, um, not for a, a, a true business per se, but as an LLC that my wife and I use as a, an investing entity, and they rejected it. I mean, we live in the U.S., we have no criminal records, we, you know, and they just rejected it. So, so I don't, I don't know, um, I don't know how easy that's going to be for most people to get an in and out. I mean, if you're if you, you know, will you trust a Gemini uh, dollar if you don't have a Gemini account? You may not want to use it, right? You may not accept that. Um, so that's one issue. The other argument in general for these kinds of stable tokens, which in theory is a really good one, is, okay, say you're Venezuela and your currency is horrible, right? And you want to get, uh, you want, you want to, you know, put your money into something stable like the U.S. dollar, and, um, you know, you can't own a, you can't open American bank account, um, to do that. And you don't want to have something that could easily be confiscated. So you buy, you know, Gemini dollars or Coinbase dollars or whatever. Now, this is a very interesting, again, a very interesting theory, an interesting thesis. But again, I go back to the fact that it, in reality, to go in and out of like a Gemini dollar is extremely difficult. And let me just say that if me, as somebody who's, again, an American without a you know, criminal record, uh, goes through the know your, um, you know, know your customer thing and just with my entity, uh, if I have trouble getting an account, a Venezuelan trying to get out of their country with uh, U.S. dollars is not going to be, be able to open up a Gemini account that easily. And, and so and I should just point out, again, with Gemini, um, we did have some stuff in my other uh, podcast group, in my investor group, where, you know, people were, you know, trying to open up Gemini accounts. And even as individuals, they were waiting for like weeks and, you know, months and they just couldn't get them. So if um, so, the real the reality, Vlad, is here's what I think, at least for the short term, meaning like in the next few years. These things really aren't meant for you and me as much. They're really meant for institutional players, right? I mean, they they're really they're meant to move dollars dollars around quickly. These are Ethereum-based uh, tokens. They're easy to move quickly. Um, I think I think the idea is that potentially they'll be you know they'll be used by institutions 
to transfer money uh, quickly instead of wiring money or whatever. Um, you know, I think that's really the play here. I, I wouldn't, I don't think it has anything to do with us, you know, little retail investor type folks. So that's, uh, that's, that's my uh, story and I will stick to it. Now, um, see, Karen has a question. What do you think about some of the lending platforms out there? Uh, I saw you tweeted something about Nexo offering 6.5% interest on stable coins. Well, yeah, so it's a great question. And I start out by saying that <clears throat> uh, I do I like that Nexo project. I actually have some ownership in a small amount, and so um, so I was glad to see they had something like this. Um, and what what is this really all about? So in in other words, what this allows you to do is say you own a bunch of Bitcoin and you don't want to sell it, right? You think it's going to go up maybe, and so you don't want to get rid of it. Uh, or maybe you just don't want to cash out and pay taxes on it, right? That's the other thing. So in concept, what you could do is you could take your Bitcoin, or in this case, your stable coins, I guess. I'm not sure exactly why you would use the stable coins. But you would give them to Nexo, and they would stake them, and then they would pay you 6.5% annually. This is not 6.5% per day, you know, or something like that. This is like... You know, fairly, uh, fairly standard, I think, kind of investment return, and it's obviously a heck of a lot better than a bank, right? Where you're getting less than one percent. So, from that perspective, I personally love the concept. I think the concept is a great idea. I think, um, you know, I I certainly would consider that. You know, with with Bitcoin that I'm doing nothing with except you know just holding it to put it in and get interest on it, I think would be a really, really great um, situation. But what you find is you've got these, you know, most of the lenders out there that are like this, that allow you to do things like this, like salt is another one. Um, I think I may or may not own a little bit of salt. I don't know if I do, but um, that and Nexo and, you know, I think Ethland is another one. I think I own a little bit of Ethland because I do like this lending space. Um, all of these are generally speaking, they're based offshore and they're unregulated. Okay. So I know we love the whole crypto ethos. I know we love this idea of decentralized and stuff like that, but are you ready to put your money or your Bitcoin, you know, your your stable coins or your Bitcoin or whatever, are you are you ready to just stake those somewhere that's unregulated uh, and you know uh, maybe offshore uh, and 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 in exchange for a six and a half percent return or seven percent return? Well, I'm not right. I I don't think personally I I don't have that risk appetite because. You know, I'm investing in these projects because I think they have a potential future. I think there's a great opportunity. But personally, I would not um, stake my own money in these things um, because what if they went away, right? What if, what if what if all of a sudden salt just went away? I mean, like, you know, um, so yeah, they gave you a loan, but they didn't give you a loan for the full amount of what your, your tokens were worth. It was a fraction of that. And all of a sudden they vanish. They're done, right? So... Until there's some, and there is, by the way, something that is regulated. I'm not going to give it away right now because I interviewed um, somebody on the show for a future show. 
is going to allow something like this to happen that is regulated, that I do trust, and when they do it, uh, I'll let you know. But uh, for now, I would just say it's a good idea and concept, but stay tuned and wait for something that's a little safer. Now, uh, that's the only other question I had this week. So, you know, make sure to ask your questions by going to consensusnetwork.io because it really helps, uh, I think, for me to understand what your thoughts are, what your questions are, et cetera. And also, um, you know, if if you can't get to the website, consensusnetwork.io, you can simply email me at info at consensusnetwork.io. And uh, that's it for me this week. This is Buck Joffrey uh, with Consensus Network signing off.